0: We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen. I think something is happening.
1: Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy your song. We move fast. Can you take it?
0: No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big.
2: I am big.
1: It's the pictures that got small.
0: Uh-huh.
1: We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell them. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Bra- Dream. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1996's The Cable Guy, written by Lou Holtz Jr. and directed by Ben Stiller. Here's a clip.
0: Cable guy, let's do this. Slip the cable guy fifty bucks. He'll give you all the movie
2: channels for free. You're offering me a bribe. What you have just done is illegal. And in this state, if convicted, you could be fined up to five thousand dollars or spend six months in a correctional facility. Oh, oh, please, no, that was dumb. I'm just, I was just making conversation.
1: <laughs> I'm just jerking your chin. <laughs> I'll juice you up for Stephen Kovacs. You guys
2: play here, too? Cool.
1: The price of cable just went up.
2: Okay, Chip Douglas, you're on my team. Let's play. No way.
1: <laughs> I'm on serious, <soon>, Tim. Now. <coughs> oh! We're not friends. I don't even know you. Well, let's fix that. He's got a friend he can't control. Where are we going? Only the finest restaurant in town. Can I have your skin?
0: Check this out. Silence of the lambs. I just don't have any room in my life for a new friend.
1: So, what are you trying to say? A friend who will not be ignored.
2: I gave you free cable. The guy is a sociopath. (laughs)
1: He leaves messages on my
2: machine night and day.
1: If you're there, pick up. Pick up, pick up, pick up, pick up, pick up. He shows up wherever I go. He won't leave me alone. He's gonna need some tough love. There's Stephen Kovacs in here. I'm Stephen Kovacs. I didn't do anything. Just call my cable guy. Please look into it. Nobody named Chip Douglas works for the cable company. Suspicious, isn't it?
2: You're all being fooled by him.
1: <laughs> he's a lunatic and he's a felon. Don't
0: mess with me.
1: Come back here so that I may brain thee. I'm here for you. Don't do that. You're going to get me killed. Oh,
0: Billy.
1: <laughs> Jim Carrey, Matthew Broderick, the cable guy. Okay, I'm going. Take off. All right, that was a clip from 1996 Is The Cable Guy, again written by Lou Holtz Jr. and directed by Ben Stiller. My name is Patrick Murphy. Joining me to talk about this movie and the chooser of this movie is Ricky V.
0: What's up, Patrick?
1: Not a whole lot. This is a weird one for, uh, for our podcast, I feel like, but I, it does have some, does bear a resemblance to other genres that we've certainly covered. Um, also joining us <laughs> after my brain freeze is Simon Howell. Hello. Uh, All right, so Rick, you picked the cable guy, this Jim Carrey vehicle. I remember this was like a big deal back in the day. Jim Carrey got paid $20 million to do this. Um, A lot of people were expecting certain things out of Jim Carrey at the time because he had made two Ace Venturas, and I think he had done The Mask at this point as well. Um, People wanted goofy, big, goofy comedy from this guy. That is not what they got, and I remember there being a lot of disappointment and a lot of bad reviews for this movie, but it has aged well in that department. Uh, what made you choose it this week?
0: I'm actually a huge fan of this film, and I saw it on the big screen when it came out when I was young with my young friends who all hated the movie and thought I was crazy because I like this movie and thought it was ahead of its time. And even as a young Ricky D, I was still smart enough to know what a good movie is and is not, right? And so rewatching this movie 25 years later, I, I think I'm right. I think I was right when I told my friends way back in 1996 that this movie was sort of ahead of its time And even as a young Ricky D, I was still smart enough to know what a good movie is and is not. I thought it was like a really important film for Jim Carrey's career because I was a huge fan of Jim Carrey, but I wanted to see Jim Carrey do something different, not just be the guy who does goofy, wacky comedies like Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura. And I think like Waterworld, a movie we reviewed not too long ago, I think the narrative and the focus when it came to the 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 critics reviewing the film they focused so much on the salary mm-hmm. and i felt it was always unfair to everyone who worked hard making this movie but specifically jim carrey because there were actors at the time making like 17 million 16 million like bruce willis for example was making 16 million for his die
1: hard sequels right he was making 20 million dollars a picture right in there
0: <laughs> well jim carrey was the first actor to make the $20 million salary, like he broke that gap, right? But there were actors like Tom Hanks, Harrison Ford, Bruce Willis that were close. And so I thought it was really unfair to Jim Carrey that all the critics were focused so heavily on his salary because it's a comedy. And I'm like, that's also unfair to the genre of comedies because some of the greatest movies ever made were comedies. And I feel like people don't look at comedies and respect them as much as say dramas or crime thrillers and horror films, et cetera, et cetera. But comedies are so hard to make well. Like, it's really hard to make someone laugh and to, to actually write, direct, and star in a comedy. Now, this is a dark comedy. It It's like a satire. It's like a thriller. It's like a bromance. But it's still a comedy. And so, anyhow, I always just felt that Everyone was so unfair to Jim Carrey and this movie, because I think Jim Carrey's performance is is amazing. We can talk about Carrey throughout the whole entire podcast, but also like I'm a huge fan of Ben Stiller and I really do like his movies. Uh, he's made one of the best anti-drug films ever, Permanent Midnight. I like Reality Bites. So this is a second film and it's an important film for comedies like the genre Uh, moving forward because of who worked on this film, which, again, we'll talk about throughout the podcast. A bunch of people worked on this film who later paved the way for the next generation of comedies. But look, this movie is slightly ahead of its time and not because of the big speech delivered by Jim Carrey's chip when he's standing on the satellite dish and he starts to talk about the future of the internet and how, you know, you can visit the Louvre on one channel or watch female wrestling on a, a different channel, or you can shop at home like Amazon, right? Or you can play video games with your friends online, like they sort of saw into the future. And it's kind of like creepy and amazing that the writers of the screenplay were able to see what the internet w- would eventually become, like the possibility of the internet. But it's more ahead of its time because of how the internet is making us all such weirdos like this character, Jim Carrey, who grew up in front of a TV set and does not know how to properly socialize. And not to say that, like, we're going to have like a whole generation of people like Jim Carrey to, are going to grow up to be like weirdos, but just like how the internet and social media and online streaming and just the fact that we're always staring at a screen, our smartphones, etc., etc., it's changed the way we socialize. And it's kind of weird. So anyhow, It's well shot. It's well acted. It's just a matter of are you looking for a Jim Carrey comedy in which you're going to laugh your ass off like Dumb and Dumber? Because that's
1: not this movie. No, it's not. Simon, what's your take on this thing? Uh,
2: I hate to say it, but I'm really not a fan. I thought I liked it. Um, Let me actually let me backtrack a bit. Um, I think Ben Stiller is a really, really talented director. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen or heard of um, that Showtime miniseries he directed recently, *Escape at Danamora*, holy shit, that thing is really beautifully directed. Um, and I'm also a big fan of Jim Carrey in general. Um, and I I remembered liking this movie or having a certain admiration for this movie, but revisiting it now, I think it's super interesting and I hope interesting to talk about as a time capsule, um, both in sure. terms of both in terms of like production and uh, and in terms of like, I don't know, just seeing this depiction of how like cable TV was just this omnipresent force, which now, I mean, clearly the media landscape is, is has, uh, this movie may as well have been made in some senses like a million years ago, it sometimes feels like. Um, but as an actual movie to watch, um, I found it a joyless
1: slog, honestly. Interesting.
0: Do you think that, okay, my question is, you don't enjoy the movie. You did not enjoy watching the movie. You did not enjoy your time watching a movie. Correct. Do you think it's a good movie though? Because there are movies that you just don't enjoy. They're not entertaining or funny or just doesn't work for you, but you still think it's a good movie. I mean, n- no, I don't. You are wrong. No, I mean, look, if, if, if it,
2: if look, it's, it's trying to do a couple <laughs> of things at once, right? It's trying to be a dark comedy. So on some level, it should be somewhat funny. Um, in some sense of funny whatever you think that means yeah dark and comedies
1: aren't normally laugh out loud funny sure me, but but yeah okay but i get what you're but there should saying, be some though. wit there you should, should recognize be... humor somewhere
2: exactly and yeah. i don't know there's a couple moments where it gets close to that um it should maybe it should work as a thriller maybe it should work as a satire and to me in all those quadrants it it i feel like it's half assing all of them a little bit um and i think also it's it was really funny to me to read interviews with stiller And people involved in the production because they kept talking about how with each new draft, it got darker and darker and darker and uncommercial and, like, difficult for the studio to potentially deal with. But watching it now, it just feels so quaint. Like, this version of, like, you know, there's no real body count. There's, like, I don't know. it It feels like it keeps wanting to level up and it never gets there because it feels, I don't know. That it, it it might've been edgy and difficult at the time. And it seems like it kind of was based on how toxic some of the reception was, but now it's like, it feels like a dry run for stuff that he would do better later by, by him. I mean, Ben Stiller.
0: I kind of feel like you're answering Patrick's fifth question right now, early on in the podcast. Like, how does it, how does it stand the test of time? How, will, how will audiences react to watching this movie now in 2021? And clearly you did not take well to it, but at the time when this movie was released, I think it did so many interesting things that it warrants us to sit here for 45 minutes and talk about this film. Sure. You know, we, we, we talked about Jim Carrey being such a huge box office success. I mean, I can't remember the last time an actor rose to fame so quickly and had what, three, four, five top grossing films within a span of two years. Like this guy was known for his characters in, in living color, like fire, fire Marshal bill, for example. So he's, he's like, part of this uh sketch show and then rises to fame by just landing the role of ace ventura mind you he helped write the screenplay but it's like he picked the right project to launch him to start him and those movies made so much so so much money that it made sense that he can ask for 20 million dollars as uh has a, a paycheck for the cable guy but the point is he, he was so, so incredibly successful. His movies were such a huge su- success. And yet he decides to star in a movie when he knew how people would react to the movie, right? He knew that people were going to expect something like Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura. And instead, they got this really weird, dark comedy with Matthew Broderick. And he's not even technically the star of the film. Like Matthew Broderick is the protagonist. He's the star of the film. And at the time when it came out, it just did so many interesting things.
1: Well, you're right that the exhortations are way off. And let me just start this by saying that when Jim Carrey first arrived, I hated him. Cannot stand old Jim Carrey. Hate Ace Ventura. Hate the like cartoon face. Not a fan of in Living Color. Um, did not like his comedy whatsoever. Uh, I learned to like over the years. It, his comedy like the, it became more hit and miss for me. Like I really do like Dumb and Dumber, and I think he. Made some other good movies. The Truman Show is one of my favorite movies. It's amazing.
0: It's amazing, Patrick. And and this is the movie that changed his career because he went on to do Truman Show, Man on the Moon, Eternal Sunshine, and the Spotless Mind. It was a game changer.
1: Yeah. So I I think he's capable of brilliant performances. I think he can be very funny. Um. And I think this is one of those great performances. Uh, This is the movie that made me at least like not hate Jim Carrey. I didn't get this movie when I first saw it back then. (laughs) I didn't really understand it because black comedies, dark comedies, weren't really around. Uh, they weren't they weren't present in the mainstream all that much. No. And so, as a kid, I had not really seen too much like this. I mean, I you know, I was 18 years old when this came out, but um, I hadn't seen a whole lot at this point that that had that kind of humor. And I hadn't really developed my sense of humor yet. So for me it was weird but I knew that I was drawn to this performance and I still do like watching this movie and like because of his performance. Now I think we can talk about Matthew Broderick later on because I think mm. he's absolutely terrible in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and he's completely miscast. Um but that he doesn't ruin the movie for me because Carrie's so good and and I can see kind of Ben Stiller developing certain things. He still wasn't sure. He wasn't as confident as he would become on later movies. And I think Simon, like when you're talking about him pushing the envelope of this movie not going far enough, I think that's part of it. He was still I think he was still trying to develop his, you know, Ben Stillerness at that point. Because Reality Bites is a pretty safe movie too.
0: Right. It's pretty safe, but it's it, it's 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 got a huge cult following also for many reasons
1: yeah but that was a smaller movie and in this one i could see like a young ben stiller director and ben stiller is not famous when he makes this movie necessarily no. he's, i mean he's he's been around and people will recognize him he had his not. tv
2: show with yeah in it, so you know reasonably famous
1: which was like a lasted a season or something or, or season and a half so yeah he was people knew of him but he wasn't a, a mega star or anything this was a Jim Carrey movie, you see, and you could see a young director wanting to be very careful not screwing up a Jim Carrey movie that the studio has given him. And that—that's kind of what I see out of. This. He did do a couple of cool things, but he mostly tried not to get in Jim Carrey's way.
0: <laughs> well, Jim Carrey, he a lot of the great ideas that you see in this film, like my favorite scene, which we're going to talk about later in the in the medieval restaurant, that's Jim Carrey's idea. But when you talk about his performance, like the thing that makes Jim Carrey such a great comedian is the physicality, the slapstick, the way he can just be different people. You know what I mean? Like, he's just such a great actor, like a great character actor. And he's so aware of the camera. And I'll give you an example. So there's this great scene Uh, it's actually like the nightmare sequence, right? And so Ben Stiller shoots it with these wide angle lenses like these fisheye lenses because we get the point of view of Matthew Broderick's character looking through the peephole and Jim Carrey's character uh, Chip is outside and he's trying to get in. He's he's knocking on his door and he wants to get into his apartment, right? Jim Carrey is so aware of the camera shot and the fisheye lens and how it will look his performance is is all about the physicality, right? He pretends like he's walking up the stairs and he's making the sound effects, and but he's always within the frame and he understands the lens. He understand he understands how he will look and how it will be funny, or maybe funny to the audience watching. And throughout the whole entire film, he does this, like like even when they have the the karaoke scene and he's like singing, um, what was the song? Somebody again? to love. love. Somebody to love. Yeah, yeah. somebody to love. It's all about the physicality. It's about his performance. It's about his facial expressions. It's about like, yeah, he's weird. And he does the whole Jim Carrey thing that you would see in Dumb and Dumber and movies like Ace Ventura. But he also understands that his character is twisted and it's a darker role. And so he knows how to work his character and how to adapt for every scene for the camera um and for who he is or who he's supposed to be within this scene and despite the fact that this character is really twisted and troubled and he's basically like a stalker you still kind of sympathize for him and it's not just because of the flashback scene you can remove the flashback scene and he still feels sorry for his character because you realize that he's so lonely and he's so desperate for a friend and that's all he really needs to fix his problem has a performance like it's not his best performance but i think it's maybe his toughest role like this like like if i look at man on the moon and eternal sunshine of spotless mind and the truman show like i would say that those are his three best films and his three best performances but i think he had a hard time trying to like or maybe this is his toughest performance in terms of like actually trying to nail down the specific character
2: i i think um I, i as i said i'm a big big admirer of uh of jim carrey uh, this his performance here to me kind of feels like it's trapped between worlds like um all the physical comedy stuff which is honestly pretty much the same kind of stuff he was doing in these ventura movies and in, in living color um including like there's almost like a sketch comedy aspect to the to when he throws on a disguise for instance um but in terms of portraying the darker aspects of the character it i don't know it didn't feel uh, it, it it feels like a caricature of a dark, twisted person and not like a, I don't know, it, I, I didn't feel like it accessed any kind of reality, which I don't know, maybe that's the point, because uh, clearly he is, uh, he's sort of like Cable itself personified. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, it just, it, it, the shtick felt a little bit too similar to other roles of his from the period. Uh, I and disagree. I, I, I think, especially the physicality part. Yeah.
0: Um, his like if you look at his performance in Ace Ventura he's playing a character he's playing Ace Ventura if you look at Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber he's that character in this movie he doesn't have an actual personality he's a bunch of different people because he's always switching from one character like that's based off of a character from a TV show to another character that's based off of a character from a TV show or a movie and he has to switch between these characters and these different personas so quickly while still maintaining the slapstick humor the physicality it's a really tough, tough performance.
2: Oh, I don't, I don't disagree about that.
0: Okay, so, so, <laughs> so but you don't think it's a good performance?
2: No, I think it's, I think it's. Uh... I think he's. I think he is putting in a lot of effort, but I don't think that the character and performance come together in a way that really works for me.
1: Well, you could say that the character may not have been written uh, in order to take advantage of a, a lot of that stuff too. But the the character as written is maybe trapped in between both worlds, like all the drafts that they produced earlier. You said they they, they talked about how dark they were going, and yeah, I understand that it was supposed to be a lighter comedy at first. Uh, what they compared it more to, what about Bob or something like yeah. that? Yeah, um, but. Yeah, did they go dark enough? Did they write him really, truly that dark? I almost think that Carrie brings a, a majority of the darkness to the role just in certain moments. Um, that it was maybe not even in the script. Like, they could have really gone even further in this. Although I they, can't see Judd Apatow really going too dark, personally. So
0: They did. There's a bunch of scenes that they had to cut because it was too dark and the studio would not let them keep it in the film.
1: And that was the other point I was going to make like all the physicality, you know, the studio, I'm sure they demanded this. Like they, they wanted mm, this It's and, possible. and you know, Carrie's being paid $20 million to deliver. So he's going to do it. And he, I think he knocks it out of the park for, for what the movie ended up being. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think, I, I don't think that he could have done too much better of a job for how reined in the rest of the movie feels. Um, So, and he is to me what makes the movie because there there are some layers in there. Like I, I, there are some little moments where you know where Matthew Broderick's character first brings up the lisp, and there's this like Mm -hmm. nice little hurt uh, sort of denial of reality in Jim Carrey's face as he sort of tries to avoid that subject when they're when they're lying on the dish at night. Uh, Stuff like that. That's what makes you sympathize for this character, and there are little moments that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that... I, I was thinking of you know some other actor trying to make that face, and I don't know that there are too many people who could have pulled off what Carrie pulled off at that moment.
0: Dude, that scene is incredible. Like, you're totally right. His performance, his reaction, the way he... It's sort of like he... It, that's, that's a moment in the film, like a brief two seconds, five seconds, where he actually does come back to reality. And mm-hmm. he realizes that, yes, I have a lisp. And he's like, what are you talking about? And then, clearly, Matthew Broderick's character feels awkward so he changes the subject right away but it comes back later when he gives him the book
1: yes and unfortunately i don't think it pays off as well with the book as it could have but but regardless i don't really care like that moment was good enough for me to get a sense of the real person that this character was supposed to be like you say, he he drops the tv act for just just that little moment
0: I don't know if you if you think this too but so we get the flashback of him as a kid he's watching TV we get it like this this guy was raised by the TV the television was his babysitter but we have we have a quick shot of his mom and she goes out on a date and later during the party sequence a girl shows up who has a one night stand with um I keep saying Matthew Broderick what is his character's name it's um
2: Ferris Bueller
0: no it's Steven <laughs> so she has a uh, um a one night stand with Steven and we find out the next morning that she's uh, a call girl. Right. But I could not help but think that that calls back to his mom and perhaps his mom was a call girl. And that's why he has this like relationship with prostitutes. I could be wrong, but that's what I thought. But here's the thing about this character. Again, you're watching 2021. So you're going to see things differently, but this w- movie came out before screen. This movie came out before community. Like, he's sort of like a proto Abed, right? Abed from the community, where he always nods to the audience. He's always reciting stuff you heard from TV shows or movies. Like, Mm -hmm.
1: this is culture.
0: Yeah. At the time, there wasn't a character like this. Now you get movies like Cabin in the Woods, Scream, Scary Movie, so on and so forth. And one of the ways the movie was sort of ahead of its time, like maybe it was done to some degree prior to The Cable Guy. But I don't remember having a character where the whole entire film. This is not really a character. It's more like a character imitating
1: characters from TV shows and movies. If spoofs were your biggest pop culture referencing machines? Obviously, movies like Hot Shots Airplane. You know, the, those were mm-hmm. those are referencing pop culture, but you didn't generally get that in. You know, definitely not in any dramas or or quote unquote serious movies. Um, and this is, I would say this this is not a spoof. It is. A satire, but it doesn't ever really truly go into spoof territory, so
0: yeah. And if you want to talk about how this movie changed a whole generation of comedies, so the movie is directed by Ben Stiller, his second film. Ben Stiller is a big, huge name in Hollywood. You got Jim Carrey changing his whole uh career in a sense because that's when he started to take different roles doing stuff like Man on the Moon. Of course, he did Liar Liar after the cable guy, but still, like, you know what I mean. Um, That was sort of like a favor to the studio to get back the money at the box office and just do a straight up comedy. But then you have Judd Apatow, who was best friends with Jim Carrey at the time, but he wasn't really like a big household name. He comes on, he rewrites a screenplay. Yes, he's not credited as a screenplay writer. That's a whole different story. He lost a lawsuit. Whatever the point is, he did rewrite the screenplay. And it went from What's About Bob to What's About Bob meets Fatal Attraction. Um, And then you look at the people who who worked with those dudes after because they, they were so successful. And it, it it did stem from this film, like working on The Cable Guy. They launched the careers of like Will Ferrell, Steve Carell, Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, Jason Segel, Paul Rudd, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you look at the cast, like, um, you know, you got Jack Black. Sure, Jack Black was in Waterworld. I think he was in Demolition Man prior to The Cable Guy. But he's actually pretty good in this film. And this is when people actually started to take notice of Jack Black. And then you have all of these crazy cameos like you got Leslie Mann. And by the way, I think this is where she actually met Judd Apatow and they eventually did get married. Right. And they worked on a bunch of projects together in the future. You got uh, Garofalo. You got Andy Dick. You got Bob Odenkirk making cameo appearances. you know, David just Cross like Ross is in there as well. Yes. Yes. Basically
2: everyone who was involved with was uh, the ben show. show, I think.
0: Right. And then yeah. you got you got exactly, but but this is on the big screen. And of course you got Owen Wilson making his brief uh his brief cameo. He he goes on a date with Leslie Mann's character and gets his ass kicked in the washroom by uh by the cable guy. But delivering I also... a
1: performance that Owen Wilson would have done to date to like has he changed at all as an actor?
0: No, He's, not at all.
1: And and I still love him. Like, that's not a criticism. I just think it's funny that I think that today's Owen Wilson could have done the exact same role <laughs> in the exact uh, same way.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of those actors never change. Like, Paul Rudd doesn't age. He doesn't change. I feel like, uh, what's his face? Um, Jonah Hill.
2: Ben Stiller, ben, also, ben Stiller, to man. be honest.
0: <laughs> dudes, like They don't change these dudes, man. Like, even Seth Rogen, the guy's been playing the same character his whole entire life. Yeah. Um, the point is that I think this movie, regardless if you like it or not, it really did shift the career of Jim Carrey. It really did sort of help bring in this new generation of like comedies and people who work in the industry and help boost their career. And again, I, I think it was ahead of its time in terms of like what it said about the Internet, cable TV, uh, the future of online streaming, and also the way it sort of referenced what was going on at the time. Like Ben Stiller, his character is based off of the famous Mendes brothers. Uh, Mendes brothers, yeah, right. So, like, uh, his character is Sam Sweet, so he plays Sam Sweet. But what I love about for anybody
1: it... who doesn't know, they murdered their parents.
0: <laughs> right. So in the movie, th- the twist is that he he murders his twin brother Sam yes. Sweet. So he plays Sam Sweet, and so there's the whole entire film. They have this 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 subplot in which he's in court, kind of like the whole O.J. Simpson court trial thing. And the entire time you're watching a movie, you're like, how does this connect? How does this connect to Jim Carrey's character? How does this connect to the cable guy? Like it's always in the background. It's always on the TV set. And I don't like the ending, which we can talk about after the break, but I do like how they have this subplot that takes place in the background on a TV set that, and those characters never actually cross paths with Jim Carrey's character. Like, I think that's kind of like unique.
2: I actually like, uh, I like the aspect of um, having... In the climax, uh, this the way we we see the collective experience of something that everyone is watching. Um, I like that both as a time capsule and as a way to like cut as a culmination of the movie. Um, but I did feel like every time we went back to Sam Sweet and the trial, the movie just grinds to a halt. And you're just like, why are we watching this for like two solid minutes? <laughs>
1: uh so you could get stiller in there maybe i don't know basically
2: yeah basically uh, so Ben stiller can make a cameo <laughs> a
1: little uh, and
2: actually i will say it does set up uh i think the only th- the only thing in the movie that i thought was truly funny which was the uh the eric Roberts tv movie oh, about uh about the about the brothers uh, yeah. which to me like in that material that's where stiller's comic strength as a director really lies and it kind of i feel like the um the court stuff And then the TV movie, et cetera, that's really all predicting Tropic Thunder to me, which is just a way more confident
0: movie, I think, in terms of direction. Don't you think that's great, especially for the time, given the fact that there wasn't any movies that did it back then? Like the fact that there's a movie within a TV show within a movie. You know what I
2: mean? I mean, that that stuff is cool, but it's also like 2% of the movie.
0: Yeah, but I really do like the fact that they have Ben Stiller playing Sam Sweet, because like I said, the whole entire time, you're like, yeah, you say it slows down to a grind. And I'm like, no, it made me keep thinking, like, where is this going? It was it was it, like it had me intrigued. But the bottom line is, it, it just it's a commentary on our obsession with pop culture and television, and like it not only references the the trial about the men the it's the Mendes, right Menendez
1: Menendez. Men- Menendez
0: Menendez right, but it's also about the OJ Simpson trial, which was yeah. a few years earlier. But the bottom line is, when we get to the end end of the film, and he tries to kill the quote unquote babysitter, and he kind of does and everyone loses their cable because they're watching the trial and they're about to get the verdict I think it's a little too on the nose for my liking but I do still like the whole Sam Sweet uh subplot
1: well I, I'm also not exactly sure what he's trying to say I that's the one thing I could get out at ending like okay you've I'm not really sure what the trial has to do with you know, my three sons has to do with Jerry Springer. It has to do like, I get that you could go after cable in a way, but how does the trial represent cable or how does even the OJ Simpson trial? Patrick,
2: we're overthinking it. Well, that's the the, thing. So the the moral of this movie is literally cable bad.
1: Yeah, I know. And I don't think that those, those sort of examples, like it's one thing to, I I think the beginning of the movie is fine. The way that he grows up and he sort of absorbed all this pop culture And that's your anti-cable thing. I don't think that trial helps your anti-cable thing at all, because there are moments in the news that, yeah, collectively we would watch as a country. Like, maybe we should be collectively watching certain—maybe not necessarily a trial like that. But they didn't sensationalize it quite enough uh, for for that point to come across, like, okay, that it's all sensationalism. Like, cable in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. I actually thought that the Truman Show did a much better job of getting mm-hmm. that whole, like, hey, everybody, you're watching somebody else live their life against reality TV kind of thing.
2: It's funny because they basically have the same ending.
1: Like, yeah. They, they have, they they have, have the like, the, the,
2: the program ends and people are forced to return to their lives. Like, in this case, it's represented by, I think it's Kyle Gass uh, at the end who, like, picks up a yeah. book, which is, yeah. like, uh, like I guess that's fine. <laughs>
1: that that was too and that's why a truman show does it better i think where you know a lot of people are just like they're they're crying because their favorite tv show is over and what am i going to do now and then then the you know another guy just says to another guy well what's on the other channels (laughs) that that that's a better representation this movie didn't quite nail that um but I, I do like the trial segments. I think they're a fun little diversion. They, they didn't slow it down for me because I just think, I think Stiller is so, he's so funny in what in that shtick that he does. It's why I like movies like Zoolanders. There's something about mm. Stiller that just, uh, I don't know. He, he has a, a little eye for details, funny little details. Yeah, he does. That very, you know, I, I don't see all the time.
0: Let's get one thing straight. The Truman Show is a masterpiece. The Cable Guy is a good movie. I am up here to think sometimes. Clear my head. brace yourself. There she is.
2: Right now, she's sending entertainment and information to millions of satisfied citizens. That's pretty impressive. See? You'd appreciate this The future is now Soon every American home will integrate their television phone and computer You'll be able to visit the Louvre on one channel or watch female mud wrestling on another You can do your shopping at home or play Mortal Kombat with a friend in Vietnam There's no
1: end to the possibility,
0: I do think it's interesting that Jim Carrey stars in the Cable Guy. Given what the film is about and the character he plays, and then is a star of the Truman Show, and is also the star of Man on the Moon. Because I don't know if you've ever uh, seen Jim Carrey in interviews, especially lately, but his views on TV, the internet, social media—like it really resembles the themes that some of these movies are trying to address but i think the thing about the cable guys it works best has a movie about a stalker like it's it's about it's a movie about a man who's really lonely and desperately needs friends and how it's so hard to turn away someone that you know is in need of in this case friendship like i don't know if like i, I mentioned this on slack yesterday And I'll just quickly talk about it, but I've actually had a stalker and it's not only really scary, but it's really depressing because Mm -hmm. you know that all this person wants is to be your friend and spend time with you because he or she just doesn't have anyone in their life. Right. And so you feel for them. But the problem is, is that you know that if you do try to hang out with them, like even if you don't think that you're going to be friends with them, you're just going to spend one day with this person. They're going to cling on to you like it's dangerous because even that like going out with them for like going to the movie with them or just going for dinner or just having a conversation, they then become needy and they want more because it's something they've never had. And it's so depressing. But what do you do? Because you know that if you give them what they want, they're going to pretty much stalk you. And so that's what I feel like that, like, despite the fact that this movie is kind of like over the top, especially with Jimmy Carey's performance, it's also very realistic, like, people like this exist in the world, and there's a lot of them. And nowadays, in 2021, a lot of them spend way too much time on the internet, right? So it's not about being in front of a TV, it's about being in front of the internet, and it's not healthy. And so I think that this movie is kind of like really depressing at times, because that character is so true. And I've met so many people like chip in this world
2: there's a weird quirk of the script though which is that um and you know i i haven't personally been stalked but i know lots of people who have in one form or another um people like that tend to be really socially isolated um and it's a weird quirk of this movie that actually uh uh, chip is not isolated he has he's he's got like this whole network of people that he's essentially bribed to be around him but they also seem to genuinely enjoy his company so it's like i that was like a strange script aspect to me and I know that I know that having all those people around helps him uh, turn the screws on Matthew Broderick I understand that plot function but I kind of felt like it it cut against the characterization
1: a bit that I'll agree with too that whole party scene is confusing for everybody for audience members that thought this guy's supposed to be a loner who's desperate for a friend like he doesn't seem to be lacking of people to hang out with and granted okay a lot of them were not in his age group but
0: so I thought the exact same thing And I swear to God, I do not remember where I read this, but I was doing some research. And there's a specific moment, a specific line, a specific scene where Steven has the chance to say something and pretty much uh turn down uh Chip, right? And he doesn't. And it's because Chip says something like, Oh my god, I've crossed the line, haven't I? And he should have replied, Yes, yes, you have. And and that could have been his scapegoat. And then because that's when sort of Chip comes into reality. Like he 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 snaps into reality and he would have moved on and found his next victim, right? But he doesn't. And that's the thing about like we're gonna talk about Matthew Roderick now, about his performance. But the one thing about his performance and his character is he does play the weak guy like he's the guy who can't say no and so i do agree with you simon like especially with the party sequence but look at who shows up at the party right it's a bunch of older people it's like i think there's a cop and there's like a prostitute so he has someone who he's paying there's a bunch of older people he's probably looking to hang out with someone more around his age and who's a bit more hip and cool and also he's giving them something he is sort of paying them off, like with free cable or free TVs or new home entertainment system. Whereas Stephen, he also rejects the entertainment system. Like Steven's always constantly rejected. And that's the thing about a stalker, right? They're attracted to the person who's not attracted to them. Like everyone, like usually a lot of times you're attracted to someone who's not attracted to you. That's what kind of makes them attractive. The thing about Stephen is he's not really attracted to 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 chip and i don't mean in a sexual way i just mean he just doesn't want to be his friend and that makes it more uh enticing or gives chip more motivation or whatever more reason to want to be his friend i don't know if that makes any sense
2: i mean i i understand what you're saying that like his all these people around because it's like transactional or whatever uh, but i think they could have demonstrated that better and i think it also it um it's it's weird that he's able to call in all these favors, um, seemingly with no compunction from
1: anyone. Well, it uh, like is a movie. Yeah,
2: no, <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, I get it. But it's just like I don't know. As a, as a script thing, I would have. I feel like that could have used another pass.
1: And nobody ever feels uncomfortable around him, so they actually seem like his friends. So even the people at the at the restaurant, the night themed restaurant, you know, they have they they seem just totally fine with him. Yeah, they got free cable from him, but nobody seems like they hate being around him. Because he seems like a very outgoing, fun guy. And yes, I, I mean, I, he's he's fun in that awkward way that'll, that'll drive a lot of people away. But he also projects a confidence that a lot of people would be drawn to, I guess, or would be fine with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even, even if inside he's not confident. Um, so, yeah, there's all sorts of things that don't quite make him out to be the lonely guy. In fact, I, when I look at Matthew Brodock's character, this is where we need to talk about his performance. I see him as I wonder how he has any friends at all.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He's such a he's such a nothing. Like
1: he's a I, drip.
2: I, I like... don't think it's really Matthew Broderick's fault. I think I agree with you, Patrick, that I think it's a combination of unfortunate casting and just he's written to be such a fucking loser.
0: Oh, I think that... it's his fault. Uh,
2: I don't know. I, I mean,
0: I I love I love him like Ferris Bueller. One of my favorite movies of all time. Gr- watching that movie. One of the great and,
2: screen villains, no question.
0: Yeah, watching that movie over and over as a kid. I just love <laughs> I that movie. But he's he's basically Ferris Bueller really up. in every single movie. But his character isn't as interesting as Ferris Bueller. He doesn't bring anything to the role at all.
1: I, no, and he he's almost a...
0: he's the same guy from Godzilla.
1: Well, yeah, 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 you're not wrong. You're not wrong. He's a wide eyed dopey, you know, nothing of a character. Which works for
0: Ferris Bueller, but not for every role he's he's done afterward.
2: But I I do. I do think, though, that, like, I can't blame Broderick that much just because, uh, as you said, Ricky, he has so many. I I think he actually has many chances early in the film to, like, notice red flags. Be like, huh, this guy's kind of weird. And, uh, I don't know with every single character, he's such a pushover. He seems to have no spine at all. He also just, I don't know when you see him alone, he's just like channel surfing. He almost like buys shit off the home shopping network.
0: Well, he's just like, um, why should I
2: care about this guy? He's
0: watching, uh, the, what's his name? Tony.
2: Tony Robbins.
0: Yes. Like he's watching his videotape at the start of the film to get relationship advice to try to figure out how to get back to his girlfriend. I mean, this is a movie that starts where the protagonist, the main character, He's not chasing after girl. The girl dumped him. He's trying to find a way to get back with the girl. And it's the cable guy who's kind of psychotic who gives him the right advice to get back with the girl. Like he can't even figure it out, figure it out himself.
1: But okay. I, mean, he, I, I want to focus on that for a second because that's yeah. part of what makes him so unlikable is that he is not even, I don't know. Is he really even in love with his girlfriend? It's almost like he's trying to trick her in order to get her back. He's just using these little,
2: yeah, these that's little true.
1: tricks that the cable guy gives him. And at the very beginning, like, is there anything more, like, in real life, real life is complicated, so I'm not applying this to real life. But in a movie, is there anything more pathetic than a guy who gets shut down for uh, a, a wedding proposal? But a it's not just proposal? that. Like, it, that is he... a sign that he is a loser. <laughs> Dude, the way
0: he treats everyone, his family, his co-workers, his friend, Jack Black. I'm not going to go to a concert with you. I'm going to ditch you at the last second. Like yeah. he doesn't make a single right decision throughout the whole entire film. Yeah.
2: Why does this man have any friends? That's a good question. Um, and uh, I think um, also uh, he's not the. I mean, when I when the movie was done, I kind of thought um, I would like to see an, like I'd I'd like to see another take on this, where honestly the Matthew Broderick character doesn't exist, and like literally we see the movie from from the cable guy's point of view because i think that would be just a way more direct line into his psychology i think would have been way more fun
1: mm-hmm. or at least a, a twist on it where the broader character is more of the villain in all of this the broader character sees himself as this super nice guy but really he's a social vampire all he's doing yeah you're draining everybody yeah yeah him. there's
2: there's so many things they could have done with that dynamic you're right and it instead it's just it's it's very uncomplicatedly this is the this is the essentially this is the bad guy and this is the guy we're supposed to feel something for.
1: And that's where the deficiencies in the script do come in with Leslie Mann's character, for instance. Yeah. Like oh, sh-
2: poor she- Leslie Mann. Poor Leslie. <laughs> Mann.
1: Nothing, dude. She's such a good actress too. um She's her character could have been used to reinforce him one way or the other, right? But instead, it's yeah. just
2: she has aw. she basically doesn't have a car- like her hers her role in the script is basically just to jerk people around. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just to do whatever they need they need her to be nice to him now, yeah. they need her to be wary of him now, they need her and to do this and that.
2: It, it and also that. makes you wonder, like, why is he so stuck on this woman? Like, I understand that she's attractive, but like she seems to have no personality other than enjoying sleepless in Seattle.
1: <laughs> I know. There's there's zero chemistry between those two. Zero, none. <laughs> like none. there couldn't be less.
2: He has more chemistry with Jim Carrey.
1: Oh, definitely,
0: undeniably. Which, which, which. By the way, a lot of people seem to think that there's sort of like a homoerotic uh, uh, relationship between them two. I don't, I don't think so. Like, I, it's it's clearly a bromance, but I don't think that Chip is sexually attracted to, or forget about sexually attracted to. I don't think he has those sort of feelings for, for Stephen. Because if he did, then why would he help
1: Stephen get back with the girl?
2: Well, he might be some sort of cuck or something where he gets off on that kind of thing.
1: Sometimes people will think that that will, like, I don't know. There's also psychological reasons why you might, if you were attracted to somebody, why you might help them get back together. Yeah. With
2: He's, he is intensely interested in Steven's sex life, so, like, I kind of don't blame people who have that reading because it's sort of there to be read.
1: Yeah, you know. I don't. I don't see like the attraction in the actual performance, but anybody can read into it however they yeah. want to. But I'm like you, Rick. I don't. Really, I don't see any of that in there. I, I see mean, this as more of a guy that wants a friend. I take it at face value for Wolf.
0: Just I mean, here's the, the thing: like they do at one point, play porno password, but I think Chip is getting is getting off of hearing his mom and his ex girlfriend say naughty things, not hearing Steven say naughty things, you know what I mean? Right. And no offense, like Ferris Bueller was a good-looking dude, like that character in that movie, oh, he was no. slick, he was cool. I get people being attracted to Ferris Bueller. But Steven, like <laughs> like he's like a cardboard box. Like there's nothing to be attracted to here. He's a and like oh god, I don't want to be mean to Matthew Broderick cuz he's been No, it's not up, it's but... not him, it's his character. Like he's No, yeah, he's he's a he's life. a total he's a total dud.
1: Yeah.
2: Like of course Leslie Mann dubs his ass. Would you marry him? <laughs> I
1: know. There's nothing redeemable about that character whatsoever. He's disloyal. He's shifty, lying, manipulative. Uh, there's there's nothing. He's never at any point the nice guy.
0: No. Um, last thing I'm going to say before we go to break, and you guys can continue to talk if you need to, but I, I do like how um, the movie is so aggressive and Jim Carrey's character is so aggressive. Like, you think of all of these, I, I guess i would say iconic to some extent like scenes like there's some great sequences throughout the film like the basketball sequence the porno password scene the jousting match like he's so aggressive like it must have been a really draining performance like he must have been exhausted as an actor and I mean, yeah, just imagine I mean, filming this the, movie the karaoke scene
1: yeah the, the- there's a lot of physical stuff and that's what people wanted out of Jim Carrey back then, especially. I mean, I think Jim Carrey has a lot more leeway with what he can do now. But
0: I think it's physically not and mentally then. draining. Like, I think it takes a lot of energy and a lot of focus, a lot of d- determination, a lot of skill, a lot of talent to 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 do this performance. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I will say, to end the first part of the show on a positive note, um, my favorite thing about the movie is just how much cable TV there is, well, I mean, like the I like the way that the movie opens with uh, with all this cable TV, like close up footage. And we spend a lot of time looking at sort of old school 90s displays and Mm. flipping between channels. And I love the way that um, dialogue from like old TV shows will bleed into the next scene. Like that was the stuff that I thought was um, was uh, was was best executed. And I think that's really it's pointing the way to what's really in Stiller's like uh, comedic and pop culture wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the stuff that I was most impressed by.
0: Totally agree. And it sets the stage for the movie and it sort of like lets you know that this movie is going to be dark and twisted because the, the way he channel serves like the image of the channels and the blurry lines within the TV set sort of thematically sync up and match to Jim Carrey's character. So, Thematically, it sets the stage, and it sets the stage tonally for the film and his character. I thought it's a
1: great opening,
2: but it also, I will say, makes the mid nineties seem like a gray, dismal hellscape.
1: Oh, it was. (laughs) I mean, the the nineties were dark. They showed my three sons.
2: They released movies like this. Oh, sorry, I'm done. (laughs) No, that that was needlessly mean.
1: (laughs) All right, on that snipe, we're going to wrap up uh, this first half and get to uh, our five questions. But before we do that. Here's another clip from the Cable Guy.
2: We have reached the climax of our competition, good people. And now two noblemen from our audience will battle to the death to resolve a grievance. Will a master, Stephen M. Kovacs, and a Lord Chip Douglas make your way to the fighting pit? Let's go! What's going on? It appears we're going to do battle, Stephen. Is this a normal part of the show? No, but I give all the knights free cable. They said it would be cool if we just went at it for a while.
0: Well, is it safe?
2: Sure! That's what the armor's for! Come on!
0: So, what are we supposed to do? I mean, we have to be careful that we don't hurt each other, right? I cannot listen to any of your instructions, for you are my sworn enemy and are about to meet your demise.
2: okay just take it easy all right nice move
1: necessity is a mother of invention all right that was another clip from the cable guy we are at our portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions we're gonna start off positive. I'm gonna make him say something even more positive this time around, Simon. Hey, oh. What is your favorite scene? From the
2: um, I, I think my, I think the best directed sequence in the movie is actually the bathroom fight sequence. Uh, well, not fight sequence. He beats the shit out of Owen Wilson. <laughs> um, and there's a few things I like about it. First of all, I know it's kind of him doing the same shtick, but Owen Wilson's like douchebag character who you meet for like I don't know 30 seconds. Um, they they establish that very economically, and he's super. He's actually again, uh, this is one of the few things I thought was all approaching being actually funny. Um, his his sort of douchery, but then when we get to the bathroom, and uh, Jim Carrey's got this attendant, uh, and he's got this disguise on. But the actual uh, choreography of that sequence is uh, just really fun, and I, I, I love the um, that uh, he he shows off a little bit of his directorial flair, which he doesn't get to do that much in terms of uh, in terms of camera movement. Uh, with the um when he when he kicks him through the stall door and it kind of goes over top. That was just a, a nifty little sequence that kinda points to where uh where he'd go with future stuff.
0: I totally disagree. He shows off his directorial flair throughout the whole entire film. This is one of the best shot comedies of the nineties. The the camera work and this the staging and the framing is is drop dead gorgeous. It's beautiful. Love it. That sequence though Simon, you are right. It's incredible. It's a it's a great scene. No, oh, thank uh, you. Great scene! You were actually right for the first time on this podcast. I'm just
1: I, I would, I would add this little tidbit though. Owen Wilson displays his uh, inability to do physical acting. <laughs> About just listen. As...
0: If you he's want, not if a you fight
1: wanna, scene guy, really.
0: <laughs> if you're going to cast someone and get the shit kicked out of him, like, if you're going to cast someone that's going to get beat up, cast Owen Wilson, because he has that face that you just want to
1: punch. Well, yeah, he and- does, but he doesn't take punches, like, he by his own admission, too, and you can see it in his movies, like, he's not really a physical actor guy. Yeah. He doesn't take punches very well. He tries his best in this scene, but, man, you notice you notice a lot of little seams when it comes he- to that, but otherwise, I, li- I like the way the whole thing goes down. It's It's a great scene in the movie. Yeah, also I, like I watch uh, Owen Wilson, and I'm like, yeah, he doesn't like doing this fight scene.
0: Also, Jim Carrey's the skies when he walks in. I love his disguise. Um very Freddie Mercury. Very, very Freddie Mercury, very village people. Then he changes because he, he walks in, he's sort of like this badass like biker, and then he changes into the concierge. But also, when we talk about the quick references to pop culture throughout this whole entire film, sometimes it's so quick and so subtle you don't notice it on the first viewing. And when he puts it, when he puts Owen Wilson's face against the uh, air dryer, and he's puffing it like his his cheeks get all puffy, like he's um, he's playing the the clarinet or whatever in, musical instrument is like the the and he trumpet. Calls
2: Dizzy Gillespie.
0: Yeah, but then you hear Dizzy's music in the background. Did you yeah. notice that?
1: I, I yes. So I didn't notice that the first time. There's all sorts of little weird musical things in this movie.
2: There's at least three or four uh, instances of uh, of Jim Carrey singing along to the uh, to the non diegetic soundtrack.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean the Star Trek music music obviously that they yeah. use. They borrow a few things. Um, here Dude, and there. the
0: soundtrack is really all over the place. Like we hear filter, like "Hey man, nice shot" at one point in time um just like i don't know like it's just like it's all over the place like white, i think we hear white zombie too right it's it
2: is one of the most 90s, in, one of the most intensely 90s like specifically mid 90s i mean silver chair alice yeah. and Chains, kind of silver Pyros, chair. cypress hill you know just intensely
0: mid 90s you know that's what ben stiller was listening to when he's oh absolutely that absolutely <laughs> All right, Rick, what about you? What's your favorite scene? Oh, man, like, I think there's a lot of great scenes in this film. But my favorite scene, because the key word here is favorite, favorite. not best. It's, it's the right. medieval times restaurant sequence. First of all, I'm shocked that these restaurants actually exist, because apparently they do. Um, I've never been to a restaurant where you can actually participate in a joust and ride a horse. That's just like insane.
1: I would love to do that.
0: Oh, my God. it's. I would
1: vomit my meal up right there out in the arena
0: this sequence is mind-blowing first of all yes i love how he recreates the whole star trek famous fight sequence between um jim and kirk uh,
1: kirk and spock
0: sorry yes i'm not a star trek guy but then he starts singing or not humming the tune of the theme song that played during that sequence i'm not a star trek guy and i thought that was incredible And it's just the whole entire scene. Like it just like it starts off where you're like, okay, he's just going to he's just going to like pick up a sword, like a rubber sword or a plastic sword. They're going to like fight for about two seconds. It's going to be over. I did not anticipate that the scene would go to such extremes that they would actually get on a freaking horse, both of them, and perform a joust. Like I and I love the way that scene is filmed. I like the way all of the people who work at the restaurant are trying to trying their best to stay within character. <laughs> and at one point in time, one of the guys is like, dude, just get on the horse. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and also, I like the fact that Steven actually wins the duel. It's it's not it's not Chip. I thought Chip would win. Um, I don't know, man. I love that scene. I had to rewind that scene like I was watching on. Uh, I, I actually rented a movie on Prime and I wanted to rewind the scene like about two or three times to rewatch it again.
1: Well, at that point, there's an odd dynamic between those two where it seems like Chip uh, is trying to draw out the fun side of uh, Matthew Broderick's Steven, which if you look into his eyes, clearly you know doesn't exist. But that's what he's trying to do. And you think that that's where the movie's going, that somehow Chip is going to make Matthew Broderick a better person in some way. And yeah, things might turn dark in the end, and, and who knows, Chip might try to kill him or something like that. But that there's going to be an arc and part of it is getting Matthew Broderick out of some kind of stiff lifestyle, right? Like that's a pretty standard movie thing that never really comes to fruition, which is interesting, but that's what that scene seems to totally embody. Uh, It's definitely a fun scene though. Um, For me, I'm going to pick the basketball scene. I love the basketball scene. (laughs) I love the way it starts out. I love the introduction to his character and then the way he does like uh, suicide sprints to sort of warm up. And it, the way it finishes with the dunk and the smash glass, but I, more than that, I love the approach. I love the way that that um, filter starts playing right as he's climbing up Jack Black's back. Just the whole the way that whole dunk goes down, and how weird that's. I you know I've been Rick. I'm sure you've done this too, where you've been playing sports and there's like some new guy and you need okay. a, You need a person, but they don't yep. really fit in with the group.
0: Yep. Also, the scene in which he dunks the basketball and the whole entire, like, backward shatters, like, the glass. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently, the stunt coordinator got fired because the glass wasn't supposed to shatter on top of him. It was supposed to shatter backwards, right? So, because the glass shattered on top of everyone, they could have been injured. And so, the dude got automatically fired on set right then and there.
1: F. What was curious is it didn't look like breakaway glass either.
2: No. Um... The uh, I the only thing I want to say about the scene is that this is the most times the band Filter has been mentioned on a podcast in twenty years, or on in any in any format. The what? The the, the band Filter. <laughs> We've mentioned them like four times. Uh, you know, I don't think I anyone had
0: um the the cassette for Filter for that specific song. A short bus or oh the oh the single you mean? Just a single. I don't know oh, why nice. I had the single. I don't know where I got it from. Oh, you you had ca- you had cassette singles. Nice. Yeah. No, it's it's I had a cassette single. Damn. So weird. <laughs> It's it's the only cassette single I ever had, which is why I
1: remember it had a single. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. I honestly don't even remember them selling cassette singles, but I oh, it's it, it was
0: a thing, especially it was the song "Filter," but four different versions. Oh, it was, the, the song it was, is called was, hey, hey,
1: Man "Hey Man, Nice Shot. Shot." Yeah, sorry,
0: "Hey Man, Nice Shot." Sorry. I love yeah. that we're Filters still talking band, about "Filter." Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he come from like Nine Inch Nails or something?
2: Yeah, he was uh, he was in the, he was in Nine Inch Nails for a while, and then broke out. uh,
0: Um, I just want to give a quick shout out once again to the karaoke scene, because that was just amazing.
1: And I love how everyone's dressed in that party sequence. It's the most bizarre dreamlike scene in the movie. That's for sure.
2: Uh, I think that goes to the nightmare sequence, which which, which which I did think about making my choice, because I I really love the choice to give him those freaky colored contacts. That's the kind of flavor I could have gone for a lot more of in
1: this Mm -hmm. movie yes well, and again, it was those that to me personally like is another great example of carrie's performance adding that little extra bit when he's pretending to walk down the stairs and he says all right yeah. see you later and then there's just this last minute "bye" as he tries to make it sound like he's really <laughs> yeah funny. and those little details that's what made me chuckle out loud a little bit and
2: and like that, that scene feels like it's the right length uh mm-hmm. whereas a lot of other sequences like especially the um the the what it was the the Shradish game they play with the dirty word? What's was it called? Porno oh. password. Porno password. Yep. That sequence goes on forever. If you ask me,
1: agreed. Forever. That one goes on too long. I think we got the point of how uncomfortable it was right away. They yeah. Yeah. You know, they, it I also trying... shows you, by the way, what how big of a stiff Matthew brought it again, making him more unlikable. Even yeah. More unlikable. Like, what are you doing, dude? Everybody else is clearly having fun. Um. Anyway. All right, so, Simon, this this could be a, a, an interesting – well, you alluded to it a little bit, but if there's just one thing that you could change, one thing in this movie, what would it be?
2: I think, especially now having talked it over earlier, I, I really do think a lot of my problems with this movie could have been overcome by just having the cable guy be our point-of-view character, or at least closer to our point-of-view character, and having uh, – what, whoever it is uh whoever's life he is destroying um i'm not tied to it being steven i'm certainly not tied to it being matthew broderick um having that be sort of on the side uh i think for to me personally i think it would have been a, 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 been a better vector for satire it would have been more fun to watch and uh i don't know it just it, it, it i think it would have cut a lot of the dead weight too like all the stuff with the boss and leslie mann and uh and his co-workers and even jack black i don't know I, I kind of felt like all that stuff was super underdeveloped and not that interesting and I, you would you could get to jettison all that shit
1: um i can i mean that it would i could definitely see taking the movie in that direction it would certainly be i don't know i hate saying the word interesting all the time but it would be more interesting <laughs> than than maybe the perspective that they took unless you did a couple of other things uh but but, but i'll get to that when it's my turn rick what about you what would you change
0: I would change the ending. I remember when I walked out of the movie theater way back when I saw this movie in like 1996, it was released, right? Mm-hmm. I, like I told you guys, I love the movie. I was arguing with my friends, but the one thing I did not like was the ending. Cause I felt like it kind of copped out. Like, I think he should have died. I was like, you're going to kill the babysitter. You should kill yourself in order to kill the babysitter. In, in other words, when he falls from a satellite dish and you know, the cable goes off across the entire city or town and I know the movie is already bleak and really dark, and I know this Hollywood studio clearly wanted a sequel in case the movie made money. But couldn't they have shot it in a way where they left it open to interpretation, where maybe he died, maybe he didn't die, yeah, like, a, it was... like a
2: slasher movie?
0: Yeah, like, like exactly, because the movie is really dark and twisted at times, and it kind of does, you know, cross and towards like horror territory. Like you know, we mentioned Fatal Attraction, like a thriller, but like this dude is kind of crazy, right? um you kind of wonder how far would he go would he actually end up maybe accidentally or purposely killing someone one day with someone that he's stalking maybe who
1: knows He, he did kidnap leslie mann's character and like tie her up and you know raise her above the the dish
0: (laughs) (laughs) but but i i also think it's a great scene the the first scene when they go uh on a quote-unquote date and he's on top of the dish and he gives that whole monologue and speech about the future of cable tv and the internet etc etc the information highway right the information super highway i think that's a great scene and then we get it again at the end of the film but when he falls, he should have died. I thought that would have been yeah. a way better ending. And I think I, that's what they wanted, but the studio would not allow them.
2: Yeah, and I think that's kind of pointing to a general problem with the movie, which is that it's it's trying to be so dark, but like really like I don't know, the it, it would have been really pretty easy and I think quite compelling to make him like an actual murderer. Like if he's going around making friends and destroying their lives, he should be like step it up. Like, let's make him really, like, really scary and like let's let's amp up the threat. But all we really get instead is like slapstick
0: violence. But the thing about this ending is this ending, he doesn't really learn from his mistakes. Like in his no. eyes, everything's good, but it's Nobody not really does. good. No. Nobody, Nobody does. And
1: that's what I was saying. The Matthew Broderick stuff doesn't pay off. He doesn't have an arc. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't learn to be a better boyfriend. In what way did he learn to be a better boyfriend? Like In no
2: way. In he, no learned way. To, he learned to like lie and gaslight. Yeah. He learned. He, he learned how to... You could you could dispute over whether or not what he did could be considered cheating or not. Um, you know, he I get like, yeah, what, what how did he grow or change? He didn't really I guess he lost his job. Maybe that'll lead to some improvement.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, he didn't he didn't become a better person in any way. He didn't have any characteristics change because of his relationship with Chip. Uh, nothing really happened. It's Chip that came to sort of a realization at the end. But then he's then he just reverts back. So that's kind of the odd thing. It's like having your your serial killer decide that killing is wrong after all, try to kill himself, then realize like, nah, I still want to kill people.
0: My God, you guys really hate the character
1: Steven. I yeah. do, and yeah, and if that sucks. was going to be my one thing to change, wasn't necessarily. I, first of all, I want a different actor. If nothing else, I think Broderick does a complete disservice to that character. But not that it was well written or anything. Who,
2: who do but you I, want, Patrick?
1: I don't know. I'm trying to think of who could play off of. Uh, Jim Carrey better.
0: Uh, Paul Rudd.
1: Well, Rudd would have been a way more likable choice, yes. Yeah, but I'm no not question. sure that he was old enough at the time to play that character. Because um, he was what Clueless came out in '94, and he was he still yep. looked really young. Yeah, he was, he was not playing men. Um, yeah. So I don't know who I would have wanted exactly from the time period, but I I, mm. I at least would have. I also would have liked to have seen that character just develop, rewritten it- a little bit.
2: It's so funny and this is another great time capsule aspect of this movie. It's so funny that Matthew Broderick was just seen as like the safe, bankable choice mm-hmm. for like the lead character of this movie when he, he like we as we keep saying on screen, he's just not very inspiring.
1: He's a wet rag. He would go on to do some really great work. I mean, his oh, little yeah. villain in oh, Election yeah. is fantastic. Uh,
2: amazing in Election, very good in uh, Kenneth Lonergan films. Uh yeah, he's done a lot of good work since.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just that this was not <laughs> <laughs> this was not for him and the role needed to be written a little bit sharper. Um, yeah. Maybe Ben Stiller would have actually been okay in the lead role in this, but he just wasn't a big enough big enough name. He said player.
0: that he said he didn't he didn't want to take a huge role because he thought it would be too tough to direct and act. So that's why
1: he took a minor role. Which mm-hmm. I completely understand. But, right. but as a actor he probably would have been able to bring out. He's always been good with that sort of uncomfortable friendship kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I could definitely see him doing it. But yeah, I mean clearly he would get over that that hump later because he's like starring and directing and stuff uh so pretty straightforwardly later.
0: Election is an incredible film. Apart from Election, I can't name a movie in which he was amazing in after Cable Guy.
2: I I, I can't think of a lot that he starred in. I mostly think of uh of, of roles where he's shown up uh in sort of a smaller capacity and just been like a solid character actor, which is to, which to me is what he is. He's a solid character actor. I don't think of him as a guy who should necessarily be, uh, be showing up as the everyman in a thing like this.
1: All right. We should move on to the next question. MV, <laughs> MVP. Who do we see as the MVP of this movie, guys? I, I, I think it's – well, I, I'm going to start with Rick. Let's start with you really quick. Matthew Broderick. Who else?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Leslie Mann? No. Um, I mean, Jim Carrey. Come on. Uh, Here's the thing. Not only because Jim Carrey was the box office draw and he earned and deserved his $20 million, in my opinion, um, not only because his performance is fantastic, but a lot of the great scenes in the film were his ideas. For example, the the scene in which he goes to visit Stephen, who's in prison. And they do the whole callback to Midnight Express. That was Jim Carrey's idea. The medieval restaurant scene, which is my favorite scene in the in the, in the the film, that was Jim Carrey's idea. Jim Carrey helped write the script. He helped bring his ideas for what his character should be. I think you remove Jim Carrey from this movie. It could be a very interesting film. It could be a lot darker, like Simon said. Maybe you could put Ben Stiller in the main role uh, and replace uh, Matthew Broderick with whoever. Um you know, use the exact same screenplay, you get a completely different movie, which is a lot more darker, more sinister, more on the verge of being a horror film. That would be interesting. But I think for the movie that we have, the movie that we got, I think Jim is by
1: far the MVP. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm in total agreement. I think his performance makes this movie. And I, s- I still think his performance is a lot of fun to watch. Um, Simon, what about you? Wait, wait, sorry.
0: Special oh. mention to Eric Roberts, second place.
1: <laughs>
2: I was... There's only one person in my mind who showed up nailed their job, and got nothing wrong. And you're Roberts. right, Ricky. That person is Eric Roberts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he fucking kills it. He kills it in his little case. There's just not enough appreciation of Eric Roberts in this world. He rules. I always like it when Eric Roberts shows up.
1: <laughs> if for like the 10 seconds that he's in there, he is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I hope be-
2: Eric Roberts is having a good day.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, if we get to the Howard Hawks question, not every one of our movies needs to be a great movie that we discuss. I think Rick, you said this earlier. This is a good movie, not an amazing movie. Um, when you're comparing it to the Truman Show, but we still are going to go through the question, how, the Howard Hawks test, because I'm not. It, it's debatable as to a couple of things here. It's like, by virtue of the test itself, uh, you could maybe debate this one. Um, three great scenes and no bad ones, Simon
2: i uh i mean obviously i'm not going to agree to that but also i want to specifically say like i think the nadir of this movie is the i really i really don't like that prison sequence i don't like like mid-90s prison rape humor it just bums me out i don't like it
1: okay all right so you would be putting that as bad bad scene. yeah I,
2: I would that was okay. that to me was not 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 helpful
1: okay so that right away is uh Knocking it off the Howard Hawks thing for you. Rick, what about you? Does this have three great scenes and no bad ones?
0: Totally agree. Simon stole my notes once again. (laughs) So the big problem with that scene is, first of all, I don't... I'm not down with the whole rape humor, but also it seems sort of like homophobic. And for a movie that's been critiqued as having like a homoerotic relationship, I don't think that the movie feels homophobic except for that one specific scene. I think it's a terrible scene. and I think if you remove it from the movie, you would have a way better film. But it has three great scenes. But unfortunately, it does not pass the Howard Hawks test.
2: I will say it wasn't just the cable guy that did this. Like it was such a, it was such a common trope in comedies at the time and for several years afterwards. And I'm I'm glad that it sort of faded away as a thing to do. Cause it, it was, it was never, it was never, it was never good. And it was also never funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can see it in movies like uh, even there's something about Mary, which Stiller would later go on to be in, um, you know, where he's thrown in prison for a brief amount of time. And then when they let him out, he's, you know, cuddling with his in his roommate or whatever that that was just a super common thing it does nothing for the movie like that's a scene where even from a structural point of view like it does literally nothing it is thrown in there just for that joke that's it and that's not really a good reason to have a scene in there from a from a writing standpoint like even if you really thought your joke was hilarious mm, it doesn't really there's just there's just you still got to cut it out you got to cut it yeah um, all right, but well, let's talk about three great scenes then because I'm going to be I'm with you on, the, on that one. Um,
0: Can we just agree on the medieval restaurant scene?
1: Oh, yeah, that's okay. iconic. And and I think that's what we're looking for here. So I think that one is I think the basketball scene is too. Would you go with the karaoke scene? See, as I wouldn't iconic? go with the
0: basketball scene, though. What's that? I, I wouldn't choose a basketball scene as being you, you great. You don't
1: think that that one is? I always I thought think... that him dressed up in that uniform was like an iconic part of this movie.
0: I think I think him, like the way he dresses, the way he, like, you know, him doing the suicide runs. Yes. Like all that is funny and I did laugh, like I chuckled, but I don't think it's a great sequence because like this I don't know how to explain it like okay, this movie is like clearly over the top, right? But they disguise the, the whole basketball sequence because Jim Carrey can't play basketball for the life of him. So you get these like ridiculous shots of him like, you know, walking on Jack Black's back to get the dunk and it just it does it just you can t- like i think the problem i have with that scene maybe it's because i play ball it's because you can tell that they filmed it and disguised it to hide jim carrey's lack of talent for for sports whereas yeah. the actual medieval restaurant sequence they fight they they pick up swords and weapons and axes and and they they fight and they get on the horse and they actually ride the horse and i mean i heard the um, I read uh, Matthew Broderick was uh, is allergic to horses. So he had a really tough time doing that scene. So imagine trying to like, you know, climb on a horse and do a a joust and like you're allergic to horses. So I I don't know. I mean, if you choose that scene, I won't I won't be offended. (laughs) But I, I do think that the karaoke scene and the nightmare sequence would be the the two scenes I would put over the basketball scene along with the medieval restaurant. Those would be my three.
1: Yeah, I definitely like, I definitely think the the medieval scene is going to, it's got to be in there for sure. The karaoke scene can make it. I think a lot of people remember that. I think it goes on just a little bit too long, personally. Um, the Nightmare sequence is fantastic. I'm not sure how many people even remember that. I had forgotten. I
2: sure as sequence. hell didn't. I sure uh, as hell didn't.
1: I forgot it. It's fantastic, but I, I didn't remember it. So I'm not sure if it would go in the iconic scene. So department. you haven't but it-
0: watched a movie trailer because it's all over the movie trailer. And by the way, this is one of those movies that I think was that, that I think also suffered from the marketing because everyone went to watch a movie expecting a really funny comedy like Dumb and yeah. Dumber and Ace Ventura. And it's not, but also like the actual trailer gives away the entire story. Like I'm telling you, like it
2: tells That was you- very common in the nineties in my yeah. experience.
1: Um, that, The biggest sin is that we're like fooling people as to what they're, what they're going to get. And you're just doing the entire movie a disservice, but this is how a movie becomes a cult favorite afterwards. Because after in retrospect, people have had time to process it and they're not as disappointed maybe as they were back in the day. Uh, this movie, by the way, was not a flop or anything. It still made a hundred million dollars on a I don't know. It, it definitely made made money. It was not a.
0: It kind of was a flop. I did my research on this because I wasn't too sure because I I read different uh, different opinions. But so the movie, um, I think it cost only fifteen million to make, but his salary was twenty million. But anyways, the point is, if you calculate the amount of money it made overseas along with what it made domestically here in North America. If you if you consider the amount of money they spent advertising and so on, so forth, and the money that went into promoting the film, they really did not make much money back, if any, maybe made money on VHS and DVD sales later. But at the time, like that first initial like year, it it, like Jim Carrey not only got 20 million dollars to make the movie, but he got 15 percent back end, which means he gets 15 percent of whatever the movie makes at the box office.
1: Yeah, no i I understand there's a lot of bookkeeping trick we can never be sure about no, you really what can't. movies how much movie, you know did movies make money yeah but the bottom line is you can generally generally take like a times two and you're and you're you know that it didn't die this movie wasn't like a killer it didn't you know it didn't explode that's what I mean it wasn't a flop
2: well it, it, it wasn't a total flop but I've always been under the impression maybe Ricky you can say more about this if you know I've always been under the impression uh that it it uh, stalled Judd Apatow's producing slash creative career uh, for a little while uh, because he, you know, it was it should have been a big hit for him and it wasn't.
0: As a producer, yeah, uh, he didn't get the credit as a screenplay writer as a producer. I'm pretty sure it did slow down his career. I mean, Jim Carrey had to make Liar Liar after this movie to sort of like justify his twenty million dollar paycheck because that movie was a huge success at the box office. But then he was able to make Man on the Moon after, right? Um, so I was looking at Jim Carrey's um, paycheck. So he got paid $450,000 for Ace Ventura. Compare that to $20 million for the cable guy.
2: And that was in what, like three years?
0: Yeah, yeah. But, but the amount of money that Ace Ventura made, he got no... Um, I mean I'm sure, a I'm sure percentage or whatever. Yeah, like I'm sure he gets uh some royalties, royalties. obviously, for the rest of his life, but he didn't yeah. get the the fifteen percent back end cut that he got for the cable guy.
1: It's points that a lot of those big actors want, um, which are just shares of a movie, obviously. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't the nineties, by the way, for those who are too young to remember them, that was the time of movie stars when people would go see a movie based on who was in it. Uh, that does not exist anymore. I don't think nobody nobody is is a guaranteed box office magic nope. person. No, nope. you know, uh,
0: I I think we talked about this a while back, Patrick, and I said there's a possibility that Tom Holland could be that guy because of clearly Spider Man. He's going to be playing Nathan Drake and Uncharted, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But he was actually in a movie recently, like some kind of like indie thriller, and it kind of bombed. And it was like released on Netflix, so like anyone could watch it for free.
2: The um the Antonio Campos movie, I think. Yes, so. and it did not I, I, Honestly, well. I watched like half of it and I turned it off. It I was watched really, like fifteen minutes and I turned it, it was off. It was garbage. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this was a time when like the, the whole reason people – there were a lot of journalists who were jealous of movie stars making this kind of money. But the bottom line is that Kerry was paid $20 million because Jim Carrey being in a movie guaranteed it, which – that it was at least going to make a certain amount of money. Uh, and the cable guy which is a weird movie still made a hundred million dollars now that's, no, that's kind true. of incredible so that's why these these actors were paid so much um you know and it was it was always brought up like you know if somebody was making a record amount of money but it was usually a movie star who guaranteed the studio a certain amount of money and that just happened back then it doesn't happen anymore but it certainly used to there was a string of like i remember tom Cruise at one point had like Seven or eight movies in a row that were all like that guy was guaranteed to give you hundred million dollars no matter what the movie was, didn't matter what kind yeah. of movie it was at all.
0: The, the funny thing is, um, guys like Tom Hanks, Mel Gibson, uh, Tom Cruise, they all thanked Jim Carrey for getting past the 20 million dollar uh gap. Uh, like I said at the time, there were a lot of them were close, like I know Willis was getting paid 16.5 million for Die Hard, but Tom Hanks was still the number one box office draw of the 90s, followed by Mel Gibson and Tom Cruise. And Schwarzenegger was in Ford plays by Her- and then Harrison Ford.
1: All right. Well, we sort of touched on this already. Last question here before we wrap things up. Um, but uh, the legacy of the cable guy, Ben Stiller's obviously gone on to do a lot of stuff. Jim Carrey has a whole, you know, Ooh, resume that. full of of, <laughs> of comedies. Is this one that's just going to get lost in both of their filmographies?
0: No, I think the Cable Guy, okay, like, here's the thing. So I chose the movie because I knew the anniversary was approaching. It was uh, a few weeks ago, right? or A week ago. And so I was like, what better time to revisit and rewatch and talk about the Cable Guy? A 25-year anniversary makes sense, right? I think the Cable Guy is going to be a movie that people will revisit, you know, at specific times because it's trending. It's like, oh, it's the anniversary or Jim Carrey dies or... Ben Stiller. Let's look Mm. back at his filmography because he's trending online, but I think it's a good movie. And because of everything that we discussed, like, you know, how it's such an interesting film in terms of like the making of the movie who was involved and what happened to these actors, producers, cinematographers, like everyone that worked on this film, what they did afterwards. Like I think for movie buffs, there will always be that curiosity, Mm -hmm. but like Simon doesn't enjoy the movie in 2021. I feel like a lot of people won't really appreciate the film if they're watching for the very first time, but I th- I think it stands the test of time. Like I, d- I don't think it's dated. Like you can say that maybe the technology whatever is dated, but not really because in the movie they sort of address the future, like the future of the information superhighway and like what things used to be like. And
2: and that's why I think uh to my mind the movie still works. Like I think it's its primary function as something that people can still enjoy is as Um, A really specific time capsule of of 1996 and not just the stuff that's in it, but, you know, the um, the grungy alt rock soundtrack and the um, the 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 specific TV references that are made and pop culture references that are made are hyper specific um, to someone who would have grown up in that era writing. Um, I think in in that sense, it's, I think it holds up just as being extremely representative of its era. Clearly, the, uh, whether it works for you or not, will vary wildly.
1: Sure. And I think no matter what, at least Carrie's performance, um, like, regardless of what, whether you think that it was, like, bold enough or not, or whether it was stuck in between, I think we all agree, like, he threw everything into it that he could, right? Like, yeah. the guy, the guy came to play. Uh, so, Unlike Matthew, <laughs> unlike Matthew Broderick. Unlike Matthew Broderick. I was about to say there's only one thing. There's nothing embarrassing in this movie, which we sometimes you can think about when you talk about dated movies. The only embarrassing thing in this movie is Matthew Broderick's performance. Um, Sorry, Matthew Broderick. But it's just it takes me out of everything. Every I mean, Jack Black
0: in. is better than him in the film.
1: Yes. And Jack Black's not great. But Jack Black would have
0: been a good choice, actually. He, for the for, for you uh, know what? you're role. right. I think you're right. Could have back they I mean, they,
2: obviously, he wasn't
0: like he was way too dude. too much of a small fry. But no uh, way, they should have reversed the role. Who cares? Jim Carrey's the box
1: office draw. That's true. That's I know true. It, it. honestly would not have mattered who Jim Carrey was going up against. Um, well, except that it kind of did because they got Matthew Broderick. So yeah, other than that, I think the movie can people can watch it. They won't find anything cringeworthy, overly cringeworthy. Um. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Simon, can we find you anywhere online still? Nope. Are you on the information superhighway? Nope.
2: nope, nope. It's it's only for perverts. I'm not on there.
1: Okay, yeah. I've tried to avoid all the Chip Douglases that I can. Uh, so I, I haven't currently been on there for a little while either. But Rick, where can people find you, the show,
0: everything hey, sort uh, cinema related? Listen, we do the podcast. We love talking about movies, but we don't want to live – our entire life on the internet so you can find us on twitter it's sorted cinema the url the website would be sortedcinema.com which will redirect you to gumistomp they are intertwined but the point is sortedcinema.com you will find all the links the show is available on itunes podbean amazon spotify you name it you can leave us a comment I do reply to people to leave comments like people leave comments every so uh, every, every now and then and they send an email and even on YouTube but um yeah I, I just don't want to spend my entire like life on the internet but we are there you can find us and we do appreciate if you do follow us and you can leave a rating uh on iTunes if you like the show
1: yeah definitely anything uh, anything we can do to get a rating, get some reaction get some comments I'd love to respond to somebody um <laughs> maybe all right, that should about wrap things up. Uh, we will be back next week with as an undeclosed movie from Simon Howell. All right, we will see you guys then.
2: You might recognize this song as performed by Jefferson Airplane in a little rockumentary called Give Me Shelter about the Rolling Stones and their nightmare at Eltamont. That night, the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels had their way. Tonight,
1: it's
0: my turn.
1: One, two, three! When the truth each found to be